Father, we, we thank you so much. We've just sung about it. We thank you so much for the unity uh, that you have given to us, that you have made us a, a, a temple, a dwelling place for your Holy Spirit, uh, united together, one person in the Lord Jesus Christ. We praise you that uh, as we have extended time together this weekend, we get to enjoy that reality. We praise you, Lord, that you're committed to it as well and have given us everything we need to pursue it and to build that unity. And so we ask now that you would just uh, open, uh, open our eyes to understand that more deeply and give us hearts that uh, are willing to pursue it and to put it into practice. And we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. I think it's fair to say that there is a, a very uh, deep-seated uh, longing in the human heart for unity, for unity. I think it's part of the reason why there's been such widespread uh, disbelief at what Putin and Russia are doing at the moment. You know, we had several weeks of build-up to it, uh, soldiers gathering around the borders of Europe, Ukraine. All the evidence was that an invasion was about to happen. We just couldn't quite believe that he would actually do that, that he would want to shatter uh, the, the peaceful order that there has been for decades now at the heart of European life. We've learned such painful lessons in the past. Would he really want to break that all apart? It just seems so extraordinary, doesn't it? Because we long for and we love unity. 18 months ago now, uh, we all uh, lived through and maybe continue to live through all of the events uh, that were surrounding uh, the death of George Floyd. And that was a very painful thing for people to watch in the first instance and then to live through the events that flowed out from that. Because as we saw that happening and then all of the fallout from it, there was just this sort of sadness at the division that there was in the societies that we know and that we live in. We thought we were closer than this. We didn't think people treated each other like that. And yet we discovered deep-seated divisions at the heart of our society. Going back just a little bit longer, uh, Brexit happens. And whatever the rights and the wrongs of Brexit, wherever you fall on that debate, there was at the same time a kind of disbelief, wasn't there? We thought we were more united than that. We thought United Europe worked better than that. There's a sort of sadness that it had to come apart because, well, for whatever reason. COVID, so much sadness at the heart of the last two years was the fact that we were all pulled apart from each other in so many different ways as restrictions were put in place as we had to isolate from each other. Almost as damaging as the virus itself, but potentially not more damaging, was the way we were pulled apart, fragmented, isolated, cut off from each other. Those are the four big news stories of the last five or six years, aren't they? And what's so hard about every single one of them is that they speak in different ways of division in the hearts of our societies. And every story exposes a longing that we have to be united together as human beings. And the advertisers know this. You can always work out what human beings really, really want by looking at adverts. Because advertisers are no fools. They know if they can attach their product to some deep-seated longing that we have, we will go out and buy that thing. So in the 1980s, I've put it at the top of your sheet there, some of you may remember this, the advert uh, that Coca-Cola put together uh, uh, 
where you had this scene on the top of a kind of mountain side, and there were men and women of all sorts of different backgrounds, all dressed in white, singing, I'd like to teach the world to sing in perfect harmony, Coke. <laughs> and you sort of looked at this and thought, oh, it's wonderful, isn't it? It's so kind of powerful and moving to see these people singing together of harmony, I'll go and buy Coke. Like, how does that work? But anyway, they, they knew what they were doing. Or in the, uh, in the 2000s, you had the United Colours of Benetton, didn't you? Advertisers, yeah, adverts with people of all sorts of different ethnicities, all smiling and looking happy together, wearing Benetton clothing. It's like, if I wear Benetton, maybe we'll enjoy unity at the heart of our society. Or more recently, uh, Facebook have talked about bringing the world closer together. That's what Facebook says they can do, bring the world closer together. And we could point to lots and lots of different examples, couldn't we? All playing on that desire, but pulling the strings of our hearts towards unity. Well, the amazing truth at the heart of the book of Ephesians is that that unity that we long for as human beings can be found in the church. We haven't had time to work through it, but the second half of chapter 2 explains exactly that. That in the Lord Jesus Christ, that was, you remember I said that's the kind of theological reality that binds the whole of the first half of that chapter, that we are in Jesus Christ. That's how we enjoy all of the blessings in the heavenly realms. Uh, that is how we have been brought from death to life. But in the second half of chapter 2, Paul explains how in the Lord Jesus Christ, Jew and Gentile have been brought together. One man, one person in the Lord Jesus Christ, into a, a dwelling place for the Holy Spirit, uh, one temple, united together. And now here in Ephesians chapter 4, the metaphor changes uh, from a temple to a body, a united body. And you can see it there in verse 16. Let me read verse 16 to you. Just enjoy the beauty of this image. Uh, Paul says, from him, from Jesus Christ, the whole body is joined together uh, joined, sorry, and held together by every supporting ligament. Uh, uh, sorry, let me start again. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Now, like I say, that's a beautiful image. It's actually a slightly icky image, isn't it? Because he talks about supporting ligaments. Right now, I know there are doctors in the room. You'd have to be a doctor to know what a ligament is. It's a, it's a you know, kind of fleshy bit of something that holds bones and joints together, isn't it? And we don't see them normally, they're under the skin. So actually it's a slightly icky image, but it's a beautiful image because the ligaments signify love. The body of Jesus Christ is held together and grows and builds itself up in love. So that's the beautiful united image that Paul is using here in, in chapter 4 of Ephesians. And he wants us to imagine for a moment what it would be like to be part of a community that is bound together in love. Because that's the church. Imagine a community where every moment of the life of that community is characterised by love. Where every problem that that community faces is countered by love. Where every relationship in that community is characterised by love. That's the reality at the heart of a gospel culture, a culture of love. But this picture that Paul gives us of a body united together isn't something that will just happen out of nowhere. I think sometimes that is the mistake that we can make. We think to ourselves, if, if we're just 
If we're just nice to each other, if we are nice people, then this reality is just going to play out. Okay, and so we just think, well, let's just find another group of nice people. Let's all be nice with each other and we'll enjoy this unity. But Paul is saying here by implication that it isn't just going to happen. Okay, this unity that we have been given in the Lord Jesus Christ and that we long to see grow is not just going to happen. Because in Ephesians chapter 4, he gives us a, a blueprint, if you like, a blueprint to build on or a pattern to follow that if we will commit to it, we'll see this unity grow in our churches. But we have a part to play or we have work to do. Do you see verse 16? From him, the whole body joined and held together by every sporting ligament grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Okay, so this body requires body building. There is work to do if we're going to enjoy this unity together. So what is the work? Okay, if we're thinking, right, we want this unity, we long for this unity, love the thought of this unity, want to be part of a community that is uh, um, characterised by this unity, what is this work that we've got to do? Well, let's work through these verses and see how they play out. Because it starts in verses 1 to 3 as Paul describes our, our gathering for gospel unity. So verse 1, he says, As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. So these are the behaviours, he says, the characteristics, if you like, of gospel culture. You see them there? Humility, gentleness, patience and love. Let me say them again because I want you to hear them. Humility, gentleness, patience and love. And if as I said those words or as we read those verses you thought, ouch, as you heard one of those words, make a mental note of that now. Maybe even jot it down on your piece of paper. If you thought, oh gosh, I do struggle with gentleness. I do struggle with patience, I struggle with humility, I struggle with love. Make a mental note of that and let that be the characteristic that you take away from today to work on. Because the fact of the matter is these characteristics, as Paul lays them out here, they are the total opposite, aren't they, of so much of London life. You know, whether it's the, the school you're at or the hospital you work in or the office that you're part of. And so the chances are that as people who spend our days in these places, in and around London, we will have been affected by London culture rather than gospel culture. Paul says, be characterised by humility. London says, take pride in yourself. Make sure you have enough me time in your life. You do you. And no one should tell you any other way. Paul says, uh, be gentle. London says, don't let anyone stand in your way. Paul says, be patient. London says, you should have it now. Paul says, we should be a community of supportive love. London says, you should be all about personal ambition. And Paul says, as he calls the Ephesians to live a life worthy of the calling they've received, cultivate these characteristics. 
work on them, pray in the light of them. And verse 3, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. It's strong, isn't it? Make every effort. Pursue this reality wholeheartedly. Don't just, uh, in in a kind of spirit of complacency, assume it will happen. Go after it. Every single person in the Ephesian church should pursue this reality by cultivating those characteristics. And we'll cultivate those characteristics, says Paul, if we are convinced of the oneness that we have at the heart of our faith. So verse 3, he says, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. And then goes on verse 4, there is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Pursue oneness, he says, in your uh, attitudes and actions, because oneness is what you have been given in and through the gospel. And he describes this powerful collection of, of truths and of realities that have in common a oneness. These different things, he says, are the things that bring us together as Christians. Uh, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. And we haven't got time to unpack them all, but they are the heart of the Christian life. They are the heart of the gospel as Paul has given them to the Ephesian church. Now, for what it's worth, this is how unity always works. I think sometimes we think oh, the way unity works is a group of people get together and, and agree to get on with something. Uh, They agree to get on with each other. It's kind of, let's come together and agree to be nice to each other. That's how unity works. That's never how unity works. The way unity works is people come together in pursuit of a common cause or with a kind of common passion. So Paul gives gives them these uh, these truths, these these, um, uniting reality, because he knows as they focus on those things, those are the things that will unite them together. And like I say, that's how unity works. Um, in East London, around the London Stadium, where West Ham play, once a week roughly, all of a sudden, everybody begins to look the same. You get a, a group of mainly uh, middle-aged men, as far as I can tell, walking around, wearing claret and blue, same haircuts, uh, same kind of general manner, heading to the same stadium so they can sing the same songs to each other, right? Now that's not because they all said, wouldn't it be lovely to sing some songs and just generally dress the same? That's because they're all deeply, deeply committed to West Ham Football Club, right? That's what, that's the thing that they have in common. And that reality in front of them kind of breeds a unity among them. And that's true in in every area of life, you know, you put a political party or a business or whatever it is, the common cause is what breeds the unity. And so Paul is, is saying to the Ephesians, look, here are the things that you have in common. And they're all lined out there in verses, uh, outlined there in verses three and four. These are the truths that hold us together. And that's true of Christianity. It has a, a body of truth at its heart, passed down from the Lord Jesus Christ, through the apostles, to us here today. These are the things that unite us and that we must be committed to. 
Which is why it's a mistake when people say, have you ever heard someone say this? Uh, love unites, but doctrine divides. Have you ever heard anyone say that? What they mean by that is, um, as Christians, we should be united to each other and should pursue that. And what doctrine, by which they mean often the more contentious elements of the Christian faith, either in terms of sort of complicated elements of the truth of the gospel or more contentious areas of ethics in the Christian life, they, they divide us. So let's not worry about those things. Let's forget those things. And instead, let's just get on and, and love each other. And be together. Don't focus on those things. The problem with that thinking is it mistakes the fruit for the root. Unity together, a, a, a culture of love, is always the fruit of a group of people committed to a common cause or a common understanding and a common body of truth. And so if you want to see the fruit of unified living, Paul would say, commit to the roots of this body of truth at the heart of the gospel, this collection of realities that he has been revealing to them. When um, we have a little garden outside with a couple of flower beds, when we go to the garden centre and buy a new plant, what we don't do is, is sort of just take it out of its pot and, and just pop it down there and then just enjoy looking at the flowers. What we do is we, we get down and we, you know, you dig the hole and you buy some manure, some compost or whatever it is. And you get in there and you get it all sorted and you plant the plant in there and you make sure it's all set. And that's kind of that's grubby work to do in the first instance. But you, do, you pay attention to the roots. You make sure it's planted well so that you can see the fruits or the flowers or whatever it is. Gospel culture is not culture that avoids the trickier truths at the heart of the Christian message. Now, gospel culture is culture that's committed to those truths, committed to those realities, that's committed to our one Lord, that's committed to the one faith, the, the body of truth passed down from the apostles to us, that's committed to the one baptism, to looking back to that moment when you were baptised at the heart of your faith that's committed to the one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. It's committed to those things and thinking about those things and talking about those things, such that even when we come to a point where we think, oh, I'm not sure if we agree on that, rather than saying, well, let's just avoid talking about that, instead says, well, let's, let's get our hands dirty. In a spirit of brother and sisterly love, let's actually look at God's word and study it together. And my experience has always been that when Christians sit down together over God's word, rather than actually causing division, that causes unity. Um, you know, when it is that you're coming, you, you come up to a sermon where you think, oh, there are some really difficult bits in this, as I'm sure happens when you preach through the scriptures sequentially. You come to the bits that if you had the choice, you'd avoid them. And you, you, know, you wake up on Sunday morning a bit more nervous because you're dreading preaching those bits. My experience has always been that when you preach those bits wholeheartedly, trying to get people to understand them, it actually breeds a unity in the heart of the church rather than a division. Because God's people love the sound of God's words and want to hear it preached to them. And God has given gifts to ensure that this reality works its way out in the life of the church. 
gifts are given for gospel unity. You see, that's where, goes, uh, that's where Paul goes on in verses 7 and following. Verse 8, you see there, is a quote from Psalm 68. And verses 9 and 10 show how that psalm has been fulfilled today. So he says, verse 7, To each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, When he ascended on high, he laid captives in his train and gave gifts to men. What does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower earthly re uh, regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. What Paul is doing, in, in, they, they seem a bit confusing at first, these verses, doesn't it? But what Paul is simply doing is describing Jesus Christ as being a bit like a warrior. Okay, he's a warrior who, in the first instance, descended to the lower earthly regions, which I think is just Paul talking about the earth. He descended to the earth, first of all, and as he descended, so he defeated Satan and won a great victory for gods. And then as a result of having won that victory, he then ascended up back into the heavens. And as he ascended, he gave gifts. That's what the psalm says. When he ascended on high... He led captives in his train and gave gifts to men. It was common practice in the, in the ancient world, and this would have been true in the Roman world that the Ephesians were used to, that when an emperor went off to war, uh, having achieved the victory, when he came back from war, he would enter Rome or wherever it was with a great train behind him, demonstrating his amazing victory that he'd won. And as he marched into town, he would pass out to people the spoils of war. So the crowds would gather and enjoy the victory uh, with the emperor or whoever it was. Well, Paul is saying that Jesus Christ is like that, right? He's won this incredible victory and ascended up to heaven. And as he ascended, says Paul, he gave out gifts to the church to ensure that this unity that he'd won was implemented in the life of the church. Now that raises the question, doesn't it? What are the gifts what are the gifts that God gave, that Jesus Christ gave to his church? Well, that's what you get in verse 11. It was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastor teachers. The gifts that Jesus Christ gave to his church are people, and people with specific roles. And these roles that you've got there in verse 11, apostles, prophets, evangelists, and pastors and teachers, they have in common that they are all ministers of God's word. Right? That's what they have in common. In the first instance, you've got uh, the apostles and prophets. Uh, those are what you might refer to as foundational gifts. Foundational gifts because, well, they are the foundation. So you look back, if you've got your Bible in front of you, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20 describes, remember we talked about this a moment ago, the temple, the temple that is the church, chapter 2, verse 20, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. And like any foundations, they have been laid already. So the apostles and the prophets are a unique uh, kind of a one moment in time group of people, uniquely commissioned and inspired by Jesus Christ. Read, about, uh, read John 14, 15, 16, you see him doing exactly this. 
He chooses this group of 12 men, and then the Apostle Paul is the 13th added into that. And they are, like I say, commissioned by Jesus Christ and then inspired by Jesus Christ as those who will pass on the gospel to the world. And the prophets, well, there's some debate about that. Some people say, oh, they're the, they're, they're the, the Old Testament. So you've got the apostles and the prophets, the New Testament and the Old Testament. Though it's curious that they're in that order. Others say, no, they're a unique one-off gift to the church who, who existed in the life of the church before the canon of Scripture had been drawn together. Again, to speak God's words to God's people. But once the canon of Scripture had been finalised, uh, their gift, as it were, ceased to function. Either way, Paul describes them as foundational in a way that means, I think, they're one-off and we shouldn't expect them today. If you see churches talking about having apostles in their church, I, I think that's probably wrong. I think that's a misunderstanding of how the Bible uses the word apostle. The way we receive this gift today is through the writings of the apostles and the prophets. But then he says you've got another set of gifts, uh, the evangelists and the pastors and teachers. And these people, as you see this, um, th this gift unpacked in Ephesians or in the rest of the New Testament, these are people who take this revelation from God and apply it to the church in a contemporary fashion today. So evangelists are those who take the gospel to the world that needs to hear it. And pastor teachers are those who apply the word of God to the church today. And Paul says here that Jesus Christ has given every single one of them as a gift to the church. Which means Tom Watts is God's gift to you today and he's smiling because he's a bit embarrassed to be described in that way he would never stand up here and say to you i am god's gift to you <laughs> but he is he is god's gift to you uh, or david and others who engage in the ministry of the word among you pastoring you and teaching you they are god's gifts to you isn't that a wonderful thing to have a pastor who wants to teach god's word to you uh, it would be worth thinking how do you look after a great gift that has been given to you? I don't worry, Tom hasn't said anything to me. I'd say this without any degree of kind of being pointed. I suspect you're great at looking after your pastor, but we all need a nudge every once in a while. God has given you a great gift in Tom and others who want to teach God's word to you. And so we need to look after him and pray for him and encourage him in his ministry. If God's given him to you to minister to you and he's God's gift then you should do everything to encourage him in that ministry. Now that raises the question, doesn't it? What is he supposed to do? What is the job uh, that Tom is God's gift to achieve? Well, that's verse 12. So let's follow it from verse 11. He says there, it was uh, he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers. Why? To prepare God's people for works of service, so that the body of Christ may be built up. That's the job that God has given Tom to do here for you at St John's Downshire Hill, to prepare God's people for works of service. Although actually, I'm not sure the translation is quite right there, because it's put the word works in plural, when in the original it's singular. So Tom's job is to prepare God's people for the work 
of service, or better perhaps, the work of ministry. Which is Paul's way, Paul is saying there, there's, there's one job that God uh, wants Tom to equip you all to do, rather than lots of jobs. Now that's not to say that there aren't lots of jobs that there are to do in, in church. It's not to say that there aren't lots of gifts that you lot have been given to serve the church. 1 Corinthians 12 speaks about exactly that. But I don't think here Paul is saying that Tom's job is to equip you to use all of your gifts in lots of different ways. Paul is saying here that Tom's job is to equip you all to do one job. That is the work of ministry. Now that raises the question, doesn't it? What is the work of ministry that Tom is to equip every single person to do? Well, I think the answer to that comes in verse 15, where Paul talks about speaking the truth in love. Now, why am I equating the work of ministry with speaking the truth in love? Well, I think because as Paul unpacks it, you see those two ministries have exactly the same goal in mind. So in verse 12, he says that uh, 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 these gifts are to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach, the, uh, the, reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ, right? So the gifts are given to prepare the people for works of service so the whole body grows. And then verse 15, he says, instead, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, uh, uh, that is Christ. From him, the whole body joined and held together by every sporting ligament grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. So the work of ministry has the result of the body growing together and speaking the truth in love has the result of growing the body together. And it would make sense, wouldn't it, that those who have been given responsibility for ministering God's word to God's people would have the effect of then giving that word to the people so that they might then speak it to each other in love. That's what Paul means when he talks about speaking the truth in love, not saying honest things to each other, but taking the truth that God has revealed that is in Jesus Christ and speaking it to each other. And so what Paul is saying here is that this ministry of the words that God has given gifts to achieve is actually a ministry that falls to every single person in the end. And Sunday morning, say, when you gather for, for, for church together, that's equipping time. It's not, just, it's not just listening time and then going away and getting on with the rest of your Sunday. It's equipping time. So that as you listen to Tom or whoever it is that's preaching, uh, you are being given the tools through which you can do the work of ministry among each other. That is to say, that is so that you can speak the truth in love to each other. You know, whether it's over coffee after the meeting, as you say to each other, look, you know, as, as Tom was just preaching to us this morning, it just struck me, you know, that thing we talked about last week, that struggle that you're having at the moment, that decision you're facing, what Tom said this morning really bears on that, doesn't it? Let me just try and help unpack that. Or, or over a coffee during the middle of the week, as you sit down together and chat about life. As you've listened to the teaching of God's word week in, week out, so you're being equipped to minister it to each other. Or when a pastoral crisis hits in someone's life, 
you're able to draw alongside each other because you've been equipped, because you've been listening to the teaching of God's word and are able to speak the truth in love to each other. Or, or someone is a brand new Christian and they're just saying, oh, look, I want to grow. I don't, I don't, I, there's so many different things I want to learn about, so many things I'm confused about. You don't have to say, go and talk to Tom. If you've been equipped by the ministry of God's word, you're in a place then to just talk to this person and to get alongside them and to disciple them. This week, I was in, in our small groups, we're going through the book of Romans, and we were in Romans chapter 8, we are at the end of Romans chapter 8, and I was leading this particular small group this week, and we were going through lots of different pastoral scenarios, trying to think how God's word bore on those, and at one point, as people were sort of, you know, struggling to think how they might deal with something, they said, one of them said, oh, Jamie, this is why we're so glad we've got you to do this, and I said to them, no, 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 the exact point of what we're doing here is so that you can do this. Now, don't get me wrong, your pastor teachers are supposed to do it as well. But when things are going well, at the heart of a gospel culture is a pastor teacher who is equipping the saints uh, for the work of ministry. The picture, if you like, is of um, Sunday morning is like when you drop it, um, you know, you get a bit of ink and you drop it into a glass of water. And it's there, it's concentrated. And then you drop it into the water and what happens? Well, slowly but surely it works its way through the whole glass of water. And then a few minutes later, you come back and the whole glass of water is ink coloured because it's worked its way through. Or when you get a, um, you know, you use science experiments where you get the Petri dish and it's got that kind of nutrient rich stuff in it. And you put the little bit of bacteria in the dish and then you put the lid on it and you come back a week later and examine. And what's happened the bacteria has kind of worked its way through the whole dish. That's not a very nice image. This is meant to be a nice image, isn't it? Um, they're friendly bacteria. It's yakult. You see, it kind of works its way. You drop, the little, you drop it in, and then it works its way through the hole. That's Sunday morning, or small groups, or whatever it is. The word of God is dropped into the heart of the life of the church, and then the church takes it and is equipped with it to then pass it on to each other. I was talking to, I hope he won't mind me saying, I was talking to John, there's John over there at, uh, at lunchtime. Uh, I said, what, you know, what, what do you do for a living? He said, I'm retired. I said, oh, what are you doing with your retirement? And he, sort of, he said, um, oh, a few different things, his grandkids around, that kind of thing. And then he said, oh, I do some, I do some one-to-one Bible studies with people and I uh, lead a small group. I thought to myself, what a fantastic use of your retirement. Uh, not waiting for Tom to do all the pastoral work, but instead getting on with doing it as well. Now we're all, Busy, we've got competing pressures in our lives. Some have more capacity, some have less capacity. But it's a wonderful thing when a whole church is committed to being equipped and then building the body up. I said, you know, one of the five things we love to encourage in our church family, this is, this is my favourite of the five things, love to encourage everybody to be thoughtful about discipling another person. And that can look all sorts of different ways. It doesn't have to be a formal one-to-one Bible study with someone during the week, though that's great. It can be as simple as just making a beeline for someone once a month and saying, how are you doing? Let's pray together. Let's encourage each other. It could be with someone who's not a Christian, actually, saying, would you like to read the Bible with me so you can understand what's going on? It can take lots of different forms. But a gospel culture is one where everybody is committed to the ministry of the word of God because God's given gifts to ensure that that happens. So let's just step back for a moment as we close. Let's just run over this pattern again that Paul has laid out for us in Ephesians chapter 4. 
he starts the chapter by calling the Ephesian church to a pattern of love. Uh, humility, gentleness, patience, love. These are the characteristics that they are to uh, cultivate, to pursue. And they do that, they pursue that, those characteristics in pursuit of a unity around a body of truth that God has given. Knowing that God has given gifts in order to help with that. And those gifts that he's given are ministers of the word, foundational gifts, the apostles and prophets, contemporary gifts, the evangelists and the pastor teachers, whose job is to equip everybody with the ministry of the words, that they may speak the truth in love to each other. And why has Paul laid out this blueprint? Why has he outlined this pattern? For growth in gospel unity. Verse 14, then he says, we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of men in their deceitful scheming. There was false teaching out and about around Ephesus. There is false teaching out and about around London. St. John's Downshire Hill does not want to be a church blown about by all kinds of deceitful teaching. Instead... Speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ Jesus. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. I want to teach the world to sing in perfect harmony. The world longs for the unity that there is at the heart of the church. But the gospel has achieved it. And now our work is to commit to the pattern that we'll see it lived out among us. Let's pray. Father, we, uh, we need your help. Uh, Lord, we love, well, not just the thought of the unity that you've achieved in Jesus Christ, but the reality of it. Uh, it's wonderful to live together in harmony as Christians. It's wonderful to enjoy the love uh, that we've seen in the Lord Jesus Christ lived out among us. We know how good it is, but we know it's hard at times. And so we ask, Lord, that you would help us uh, to commit to the work that you've called us to, to see this pattern of life that Paul lays out in the heart of the Ephesian letter to the Ephesians. Uh, we ask that you'd help us to, to, to think through what it means for us in the place that we are, with the opportunity and the resources that you have given to us to see this pattern lived out. So that we pray that St. John's Downshire Hill would be a church where the ministry of the words is rich and deep, where Tom and others are encouraged and spurred on in that, and where the church receives that ministry and then passes it on. Please equip the saints for the work of ministry, speaking the truth in love, starting even now and across the course of this weekend. And we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.